2 Corinthians chapter 5. Join me there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are looking at verses 14 through 21, 14 through 21 this morning, as we are continuing the summer sermon series uh, that we have entitled, Our Identity in Christ. Looking at those new identities we have been given because we've been united to our Savior. The identity we are focusing on this morning is our identity as a new creature. We are a new creature in Christ. And we see that in verse 17. Very familiar verse. Verse 17, this is how Paul describes us. If anyone is in Christ. And you know that this is that key phrase that is used throughout the New Testament. This is union. Union with our Savior. If anyone is in Christ, united through faith, attached to Jesus, he is a new creature. And that word new there, kainos, it refers to being new in quality, not new in time, new in quality. We're united to the life of Jesus. That's why we're justified. We're united to the death of Jesus. We're even united to his ascension. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Here, being united to him, we are new in quality. We're better. We're superior when contrasted to who we were. How new? How significant is this? How much better Are we? Finish the verse. The old things passed away. Aorist tense. The old self, our old identity, that has been replaced. Our old identity is no longer. And then Paul says, Behold, translate it this way, be amazed at this. Put it in form of a question Are you ready for what I'm about to tell you? New things, same word, kainos, better things, greater things, superior things, they have come. Perfect tense, meaning that this new identity of being a new creature in Christ that has come to us and that will stay, this is permanent. New things have been given, new desires have been given to us because of our identity in Jesus, new loves, a new motivation for life, a new worldview to live by, a new family to be a part of, the family of God, a new sensitivity to sin, a new desire for righteousness, new hopes, new goals, a new future. New security, we saw that a few weeks ago. In Christ, we're a new creature, a better, a more superior in quality, in kind. Everything about us is now different, but it's also better. Again, all because we've been united to Jesus through faith. And so this is what Paul's going to unpack for us in the passage Showing just how new, how different, how better we are because of faith in Christ. In particular, Paul notes six new things about us. Let's call them transformations. 
from the old to the new, transformation. Six transformations that have been made to us when the Father united us to his Son. Start in verse 14. We'll read through verse 21. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Six ways we have been transformed now that our identity is found in our Savior, now that we are new creatures in Christ. Let's begin with transformation number one. Transformation number one, as a new creature in Christ, we have been given a new motivation to live. We have been given a new motivation to live. That's verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. Paul's not talking about our love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for us. And the word control that Paul uses, it's a strong word, suneko. Translated this way, it drives us. It compels us. It motivates us. This word is used in a picturesque way. You can get an idea of the word. Back in Luke 19, here's what we read. It's a warning, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you, here's the word now, and hem you in on every side. The word means to dominate, to hem in. It's used in relation to arrest in Luke 22. Now the men who were holding, that's the word, holding Jesus in custody, binding him, Latching on. It's a picture of the word. The idea is that Christ's love for us hems us in. It controls us. It holds us. It dominates us. Binds us. Paul says the love Christ has for us must control our words. Must determine our desires, motivate our obedience, again, dominate our life now that we are in Him. 
His love for us is what compels us to live. We now live because Christ loves. Well, this is a drastic transformation. Because before salvation, we were controlled by fear. By fear. We feared man. We feared death. We feared failure. We feared abandonment and loss. Before salvation, we were controlled by selfishness. Pride determined our decisions. Selfishness determined our relationships. In fact, look at verse 15. We are not to live for ourselves. We cannot live for ourselves. We used to live for ourselves. But now, verse 17, now that we are a new Creature, our lives are not motivated by fear or selfishness. No, we're driven by love, divine love. We're compelled by Christ's cross. We're motivated by our Savior's sacrifice on our behalf. The principle is this. The more we understand, the more we grasp And cherish, but let's use Paul's terminology here. The more we are held by, hemmed in by, gripped by, dominated by Christ's saving love for us, the more we do not think of it as a ho-hum kind of love, the more we do not take it for granted, the more we realize how much we do not deserve it, the more we realize how infinite it actually is, when all of that is true, the more we will love like he loved and live like he lived and think like he thought. Christ's love for us is what spurs our love for him and our love for others. Milton Vincent put it this way. He wrote, the more... I behold Christ's love in the gospel, the more lovely he appears to me. And the more lovely he appears, the more self fades into the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. There's two reasons we love ourselves. Two reasons. One, We think there's no one out there that's worthy like we are to love ourselves. And or we think that no one can love us like we could love ourselves. But what does Paul say in verse 14? There's someone far more worthy than us. There's someone who will love us far more than we can love ourselves. And who is that? That is Christ who sacrifices for us. This is exactly Paul's point as he concludes in verse 14 and 15. Having concluded this, here's my conclusion. Here's what's going to motivate me, compel me, that one died for all. Go back to the cross. The supreme act of love of Christ the love of Christ is demonstrated when he dies for, in the place of. This is grace. This is mercy. 
It's a substitution when he dies for all. Who are the all? All kinds of people. Just look around. All kinds of sinners. And according to Paul, when he concludes this, when he's hemmed in by this, what is the outgrowth? Verse 15, therefore, so that all, therefore all died, all died, not referring to physical death, but death to sin. Those die, those who love Christ die to sin. Those who recognize the love of Christ die to sin. They die to self. They're controlled by this, motivated by this great love that is seen on the cross. This is death to everything that once separated us from our loving God. That's why Paul says, he, Christ, died for all. Again, all kinds of sinners so that they who live united to Christ through faith and now live for him might no longer live for themselves. That's transformation. We were selfish, dominated by self controlled by selfish ambitions and fears and loves, but, verse 15, but we now live for him. We live for him who died. We recognize the sacrifice and are motivated by it. We live for him who died because of his love and rose again on our behalf. It is the cross that must control our life. It is the gospel that must motivate our passions. It is our Savior's grace that must compel our decisions. Again, the axiom, you will live for Christ. You will speak for Christ. You will think like Christ Love like Christ to the degree that you cherish and are gripped by and dominated by his sacrificial love for you. That's the axiom. So let me ask you, how often do you consider Christ's cross? How often do you meditate on it? How often do you praise the Lord for that love? How undeserving do you believe his love is for you? How humbled are you by his grace? How precious and significant do you believe his love for you to be? Is the love of Christ your meditation? Is that on your mind? Again, are you being motivated, compelled by it? We can fill our minds with a lot of things, can't we? A lot of things. But as a new creature in Christ, we have been given a new motivation. We are now motivated by the most supreme and gracious love of all. The love of Christ controls us. Which leads into a second transformation here now that we are a new creature in Christ. Transformation number two. We have been given new eyes to see. We have been given new eyes to see, a new motivation to live, now new eyes to see. 
Verse 16, therefore, from now on, from the moment of your conversion, the moment the Father joined you to His Son, again, again, transformation, this is new, this is different, this is better. From now on, we now recognize no one according to the flesh. We're motivated by Christ's love for us. And if that is true, it is now impossible to see people according to the flesh, or as some translations put it, from a human point of view. From a human point of view. What does that mean? That is to say, we no no longer see people as the world sees them. We no longer categorize people as the world categorizes them. We no longer evaluate people according to fallen criteria. That's different from today, is it? Isn't it? How does the world want us to see people? Well, they're categorized by their political party. See that person and immediately think politics. It's going to divide into different camps. Or we see people by their net worth. That's how the world defines net worth. Or the color of their skin or their family heritage. can add to that list. But for the believer, that is not how we are to view people. That is not how we view people. All of that is external. All of that is temporary. All of that is short-sighted. It's all superficial. As a new creature in Christ, we can, we must see beyond all of that. We must stop allowing those superficial designations, worldly designations, to determine our love for others. As new creatures in Christ, we see people Not superficially, not according to the flesh. No, we see people as eternal souls. That goes beyond politics. We see people as eternal souls. We see an unbeliever. We see that unbeliever as one who needs grace, needs forgiveness. We see them as enemies of God who need to be reconciled to their Savior. Thus, we let no earthly or man-made barrier hinder our gospel love and concern for them. So easy to draw the line, isn't it? Let no earthly, no man-made barrier hinder our gospel concern for them. And for believers... We see fellow believers as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as our family. We do not see people according to the flesh from an earthly point of view. We're different. We have new eyes. We see from an eternal perspective. Transformation number three. Number three, as a new creature in Christ, we have been given a new mission to fulfill. Those first two transformations lead into this, a new mission to fulfill. Look at verse 18. Now all these things, every gift of grace given, 
Our union with Christ, the sacrificial love Christ gives to us at the cross, those fresh eyes now to see people, the change in heart to no longer live for ourselves but for our Savior, all these things, those are from God, from Him. We cannot be proud that we have these new eyes, that we have this new motivation All these things are from God. Be humbled by this, Paul says. And then notice what he he adds. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We were once an enemy of God. Paul says here, don't forget that. Don't forget that. We once needed this reconciliation, but now we've been made friends. Even more, we've been made family. We've been made friends. We've been reconciled. We'll look at this identity next week. But notice what Paul adds at the end of verse 18. Our new identity, because of faith in Jesus, his reconciling us to his father also means we have been given a new mission to fulfill. A new purpose, a better purpose, a better calling We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's been handed and entrusted to us. As new creatures in Christ, we are now used by God to bring people to Jesus. This is our calling. This is our purpose. This is now our primary mission in life. Which is why, notice the end of verse 19. He has committed to us the word, the message. Here's the gospel of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's given us, entrusted to us, his gospel. This is the gospel mission, ministry that is to permeate every other purpose we have in life. This permeates it. Every job we've been given, every relationship we enjoy. Again, think of it in terms of transformation. We were once an enemy of God, but now we have been reconciled to him as a friend. But this reconciliation goes beyond even that. We were once an enemy of God, but now we are one who speaks on behalf of God. Leads into verse 20 and transformation number four. Transformation number four. As a new creature in Christ, we have been given a new title to define us. A new title to define us. Verse 20, we are who? What? Ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's who you are. That's who I am. We're an ambassador for Christ. We're his spokesperson. We're his statesman. We're his representative as the king resides in another country. And please know what Paul says is we 
says here, we are ambassadors for Christ. This title is not limited to Paul. It would be so easy, wouldn't it? So easy. We read it. Paul says, I'm an ambassador. We say, thank you, Paul. You're the ambassador. I'm not. He doesn't say that. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is not limited to Paul. It's not limited to the believer of 25 years. You now graduate as the believer to be an ambassador. Now connect this back up to verse 17. This is anyone who is in Christ who is a new creature. This is that new title. Connect it to verse 18. This title is for all who have been reconciled to God through Christ. Again, a picturesque word. It's not hard to see the spiritual correlation here. Just as an ambassador is sent to a foreign land, so too is the Christian. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live in a foreign land. Just as the ambassador is sent to renew goodwill or friendship between two parties, so too is the Christian. We're that ambassador envoy sent by God, the King of heaven, Proclaim a message that puts an end to hostility between God and the sinner. We have been given a new title. We're an ambassador for Christ. Leads to a fifth transformation here. Fifth transformation as being a new creature in Jesus. Transformation number five. As a new creature in Christ... We live with a new urgency. We have a new urgency to live here. Look at verse 20. As it continues, we beg you. This is urgency. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Deomai, we entreat you. We implore you. There's a desperation in the word here. A beseeching urgency is being emphasized. In fact, notice the urgency of the whole passage. Look at verse 20. We speak as if God were making an appeal. Literally asking earnestly, pleading, begging. Drop down to verse 1 of chapter 6. As working together with him, we also urge... Parakaleo, same word as verse 20. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And back in verse 20, we beg you. We're imploring, beseeching, we're begging. And there's an intensity to this mandate, this mission. Why? Is there an urgency? Well, because of what verse 16 says. There's an urgency in our life because we recognize no one according to the flesh. See men and women as eternal souls. Drop down to chapter 6, verse 2. This is why Paul implores his readers, Behold... Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Common vernacular, seize the day. 
seize the day. Today is the day of salvation from enmity. Today is the day of salvation from eternal damnation. Salvation from God's wrath. That word salvation there, you can translate it as rescue. Now is the day of rescue, deliverance. Now is the day of deliverance. And nothing is more pressing. So our message is not a suggestion. Again, verse 20, it's a command. It's a command. Be reconciled to God. That's a command. It's not just any command. This is an aorist imperative. This is a sharp military command. Calls for immediate response, decisive action. Be reconciled to God. Do it now. Don't wait. And given a new sense of urgency. Well, it leads then into transformation number six. And Paul has been moving to this, leading to verses 20 and 21. Transformation number six as a new creature in Christ, we have been given a new message to speak. A new message to speak. We're a new creature in Christ, a better creature. We have a better message than anything the world can offer. And quite frankly, this is where our ambassadorship parts ways with the worldly career diplomats that preside as ambassadors today. You've heard of the term diplomacy, right? Diplomacy, you know what diplomacy is. You can speak a whole lot of words and say nothing. That's diplomacy. Today, that's not what we engage in. We're an ambassador for Christ. We speak a message that has meaning. It carries weight. Here's what we say. Look at verse 20. Here's what we say. Be reconciled to God. Our message here is that God's holy displeasure against a sinner has been appeased. And the enmity between God and depraved man has been removed through Jesus. It's a message that calls for a sinner to first come to the end of themselves, come to terms with their alienation from God. That's a must. To recognize that they're not neutral. No, they're culpable for their sinfulness. Thus, when we command, be reconciled to God, we're calling people to acknowledge their inability to save themselves, to acknowledge that salvation only comes from the Lord. Another way to put it, be reconciled to God, humble yourself before the righteous judge. This is a call for a total reorientation of one's life. No longer live for yourself. It's called a saving faith. Be reconciled. Which leads into verse 21 and why God can do this. It's the glorious truth of how God reconciles sinners to himself. How can a holy God reconcile sinners to himself? That doesn't make sense. How can he do this? 
How can he have his wrath appeased, yet stay holy and just and righteous? Well, here's how he can do it. He can send himself. Look at verse 21. Astounding. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's no more profound message than this. If there was one verse, one verse, somebody said, Patrick, you have one verse to preach on and then you're done. Life is over. This is the verse. Now, I'm hoping nobody has said that to me, but this is the verse. Why? Because this is the most profound message. This is the gospel wrapped up. In one verse, he made, this is God the Father. He made, the very God who must reconcile us did something. He acted in grace. He was moved by love. Not because of our loveliness, but because he, by nature, is loving. And what did he do? He made him who knew no sin. We now come to Christ. This is Trinitarian. The Father moves. How does the Father move? He sends the Son. The Son who knew no sin. This is the righteous one. This is Isaiah 11. Faithfulness is the belt about his waist. This is the Messiah promised. This is the Holy One, Acts 3. Hebrews 4. This is the one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So the Father in His holiness and His love and His mercy, His justice sends the sinless Son of His love. Because His law and His righteousness required a perfect life coupled with a sacrificial death. That's why verse 21 continues, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin on our behalf. This now come, takes us to the cross. From the Father, from eternity past, deciding to send his Son into Trinitarian counsel of his will, the Son willingly coming, Paul brings us in time to the cross. Jesus wasn't made, didn't become a sinner. Instead, he took sin upon himself. And notice that phrase, to be sin for us. God the Father charges all of the sins of those who would ever believe and be saved. He takes all of those sins of those who would believe and be saved and he charges them to Jesus' account as if Jesus lived those sins. get technical here. This is called imputation. Imputation. The sinless Christ is declared guilty by his father for the sins of others. And he's then treated as if he has committed those sins and then he is punished as if he committed those sins. This is what we speak. And so we have not proclaimed the gospel unless we have proclaimed the cross. 
We have not proclaimed the gospel unless we have proclaimed the cross. It's important to understand that. Because we can proclaim a lot of things, can't we? We give our personal testimony, and that's good. Not down on personal testimonies. It's good. How God has changed our life. That is not proclaiming the gospel if we have not proclaimed the cross. We can stand up for moral righteousness all day. That's not proclaiming the gospel. We can stand up for religious freedom. That's not proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed when the cross is explained. When the Father sends Jesus to become sin for us. Continue verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. Again, you have this statement now of imputation. But what takes place when this happens? What takes place? Well, you have the gospel being fulfilled, those prophecies being fulfilled when the Father would crush his son, when the Father would crush Jesus. Think of Isaiah 53, that promise that one is coming who would be pierced through for in the place of our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Amazing to think that Yahweh was pleased to crush him, smother him, That's why this is so profound. A short verse. This is why Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry that reflects the depths and horror of that spiritual suffering. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He was totally bereft of the grace and the presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse for us so that we someday will be able to see the face of God. So in the light of his countenance might fall upon us, God turned his back on his son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken is used later in Hebrews that if we are in Christ, we will never be forsaken. He's forsaken for us. Connect this back with verse 19. This is the word of reconciliation. All roads and religions do not lead to heaven. But then notice, notice the next phrase in verse 21. When God reconciles us to himself, he doesn't just wipe away our sin debt. He doesn't just save us from his wrath. He goes beyond all of that. He gives us something. Yes, he takes away our guilt. Yes, our sin is paid for, but notice he also gives us the righteousness of his son so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, in him. This is pardon plus. This is the great exchange on the cross, our sin is now credited to Christ. And then Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We literally are clothed in Christ's perfect life. 
You know the question, why should I let you into my heaven, God asks hypothetically. The answer is not because I believe in Jesus. That's not the answer. The answer is because in Christ, I've been given his righteousness. Sin is forgiven, righteousness is credited. This is the divine message Christ's ambassador proclaims, the message of reconciliation, the message of Christ being the only savior, that there is a perfect substitute that we desperately need. This is the message of forgiveness and hope and righteousness. And we've been given this because we're a new creature in that savior. Drop down to verse one of chapter six. What are we to do with this message as God's fellow workers? So we're a new creature in Christ. We're also a fellow worker with God. In and of ourselves, we are not qualified for that role. Uh, God, yeah, let me be a fellow worker with you. Not qualified. But we're in Jesus. And thus, we are now fellow workers with God. And we are to urge men and women, not to receive God's grace in vain. Behold, now we beg, we proclaim, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We plead. That's what we do with this message. Urgency. This is how we're new. This is how we're better now that we've been joined to Jesus through saving faith. We have been given a new motivation to live. The love of Christ controls us. We've been given new eyes to see. We no longer judge people by the criteria of the world. They're eternal souls. We've been given a new mission to fulfill, the mission of reconciliation. We've been given a new title. We are ambassadors for Christ, which carries with it a new sense of urgency and a new message to speak. How right Paul was in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new, better, superior creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, be amazed at this. New things have come. Father, you have done a work of grace within our life when you join us to your son. And we have quickly moved through this passage. It is profound. And so our prayer is that we would see this life that we now have in Jesus as the superior life to live. We would not look back. Yes, it's more difficult, harder. Yes, it carries with it far more responsibility. But guard us from looking back. Let us cherish the new that you have given to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, cause us to be faithful, to carry this title, and to live out this ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.